This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians uh, chapter 4. You'll remember that we're kind of marching through this letter. And uh, Paul had started out encouraging the church at Philippi in so many different ways, reminding them that they were saints, reminding them that they partnered with the gospel, which was the right thing, reminding them that God was going to finish the good work that he had started in them. And then he makes this glorious statement, I think, in uh, verse 27 in in uh, chapter 1, and he's encouraging them to live a life worthy of the gospel. And this was a headliner statement for him to them. But he goes on to explain what that looks like. He doesn't leave them hanging out there. He literally tells them what it looks like. And he talks about there in chapter 2, when he, about having the same mind, having the same love, having uh, being uh, in full accord with one another and having the same mind of, as Christ. And you'll remember that that mind was one of humility and obedience. By the time he gets to chapter 3, he continues this theme of joy and rejoicing and living a life worthy, if you will, of the gospel. And he starts out in chapter 3, he said, next, or finally, is probably what your scripture says, my brothers, Rejoice, and you'll remember that the prepositional phrase, the accent was, in the Lord. Okay, so here was uh, the full force of his message, the basis or the key to it all. And he made that clear division about the others <clears throat> versus the brothers and saying to them, he says, we are the circumcised. He, in clear Jewish language, he made it abundantly clear to these people that folks we are the circumcised. We are God's chosen people, okay? And he goes on to tell them why. He says, because we worship God by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, and then we put no confidence in the flesh. And he makes this clear, and he gives this is under the banner of rejoice in the Lord. The result, as you'll remember, was that we know Christ, that we gain Christ, that we're found in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, look at this glorious statement. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He continues on after he gives his own testimony, and he talks uh, about the bookend of that, when, if you'll remember, we talked about it last time, about standing firm in the Lord. And that was the bookend, if you will, to rejoice in Christ. And he went on to tell them what that looked like. And, we, and if you'll remember, we talked about standing firm is not the same thing as standing still. Do you remember that? And that it was an active thing. That uh, if you look down there in verse uh, 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, as we await uh, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was an active thing. And if you'll remember that he talks about standing firm in the Lord is not the same thing as standing still because we press on toward the goal. He said that we follow the examples that Christ has put in our lives and that we avoid those who dwell on earthly things, remembering where our citizenship lies. And then in this great moment, and there's, I think, in this great zeal, he says in verse 21, as we await Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So as we move on today, it appears that Paul is turning a corner, if you will. 
But I want you to understand that what he's actually doing is he's beginning to draw together. He's beginning to close his letter, and you'll see him pull in bits and pieces of what he's already said to these people, and he's bringing it to a head. He's drawing it to a close, and he uh, talks directly not only to a couple people in the church, but he points the body uh, toward this whole um, idea and necessity of peace. Just for the record, in your own mind, how would you define it? We all have a different definition, I think. But in reality, some people will say it's the absence of conflict. Other people will say it's the sound of silence. There's an oxymoron for you. Maybe it's sitting outside just peacefully in your backyard listening to tractor trailers hit the rumble strip on the corridor there in 40. I don't know. Either way. We still have this concept in our heart, and we fight for peace. We brawl over it. We protest it. We have songs about it. We have signs for it. We have symbols. We dream about it. But in reality, it eludes the world, literally. It's never obtained by some people, so Paul addresses it. And in an odd twist, he calls out names, but he makes a very poignant point. And today we want to explore what the realities that we need to come to to come to grips with if we're going to really live in peace. So let's look at it. First, if you're ever going to learn or <clears throat> learn the secret of living in peace, you must both acknowledge the threat and confront it head on. Okay? You need to acknowledge the threat to your own peace and confront it head on. Look, verse, look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia... And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names um, are in the book of life. Now, let's just stop here for a minute because just for the record, when you get your name called out in the scripture, there's a legacy tied to that, okay? Um, sometimes... Legacies are good. Um, let me throw out a couple of, of names. And uh, mostly people are, are known uh, when, when you call their name out for one particular uh, high-vis uh, event. Um, Hank Aaron. Okay. Uh, broke a lot of barriers in baseball. Tremendous uh, baseball players. I can remember at home sitting watching him hit the... Uh, um, um, the record-breaking home run. It was just great. Everybody was glued to the TV. Uh, Neil Armstrong. Immediately, you're thinking about the first man on the moon. Okay? But there's other people whose names, if I throw out on the table, you think just the opposite. Uh, Benedict Arnold. Okay, if your last name is Arnold, I doubt you're going to name your kid Benedict. You understand what I'm saying? What if your last name is Nixon? Are you going to name him Richard? Okay, same thing. If I throw out those names, immediately what comes to mind is what went sideways in their life. Well, here's one that I'm thinking, Yodia and Syntyche. Can you imagine arriving in heaven and saying, oh, you're the girls that had the fight. And wondered, was that a hair pulling contest? Was it a smackdown? You know, and it's like, I want to know the details. I really do. And this is the legacy that these two girls have. 
And Paul calls them out in a very tough legacy. But the problem is that we forget about verse 3. Look at it. Yes, and I ask you also, two companions, to help these women who have what? Labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, what? Whose names are in the book of life. We forget that part, and what we remember is the hair pulling contest. Okay? But I want you to understand that these things are in the scriptures not to focus on the issue, you know, what was going on with these two ladies, but rather it's an example for our edification, and that's what Paul's doing. I firmly believe that he didn't call these two people out because it was a minor infraction. I don't think they were fighting over the color of the carpet at church or the fact that, okay, how come we only sang two songs before the offertory? Okay, I don't think that was it. The reality is that there was something important And Paul was making this huge point, and the point was not the specific people. Don't get caught up in these ladies' names. And not even the specific issue, because Paul doesn't tell you what it is. Okay? The issue is downstream. Okay? The huge deal is that these two saints, these two women, whose names are written in the book of life, are separated in some way. And it's destroying the peace within the body. Do you understand that? It's not about their names. It's not about the issue. But what happens is this disagreement had risen to such a level that everybody knew about it. And let me just tell you something. When you have a disagreement between people, it's a short bridge between disagreement and garnering support from other people which leads to picking sides. Do you understand that? It's a short bridge. And Paul calls it out because it was disturbing the peace within the body. He vouches for their salvation. That's not the issue. But Paul's using it a critical example to bring to life what he had already written to the church. Don't segment this letter out in such a way that you forget what he's already told them. He's bringing the letter to a close, okay? These people have read it. It's been read to them, and now he's bringing it to Look what he said in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or am absent, may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you think that was going on? No. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, and by the way, that if word would translate easily into English as sense, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing. From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you think this was going on? Paul calls it out. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, look at what he says. 
I press on toward the goal to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, do you think that's going on? Think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Guess what Paul just did? He exposed it, revealing to this, the immaturity. Not to mention what he wrote to the church at Rome. Look what he said in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may be uh, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord. Jesus Christ. Look what he wrote to the church at Ephesus. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Does that sound familiar? To which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you understand how important this issue was and why Paul confronted it? We do not know what these two were at odds over. Maybe the fact that they were widows under distress. Maybe they could get no help. Maybe it was a hostile environment that they were living in and they had no support. We do not know. The only thing we know is that they weren't agreeing. They weren't in harmony. Their minds were set on earthly things, and this relationship this way was broken, and it was choking the peace within not only themselves, but within the body. And the peace was threatened, and their side-by-side labor for the gospel was not only threatened, but I'm going to guess it was broken. And can I tell you, that's like a virus that runs through a church. We pick sides, and all of a sudden, we have lost our way. And Paul is talking to them, and Paul is talking to us today. What does it look like for you and I? Well, I think it looks a little bit different, but let me tell you, the stakes are just as high. And let me tell you the number one threat in the church body today. Are you ready? Disagreeing political views. Politics. That has entered the church in a way that I have never seen in my life. Be very careful. For all of us sitting in the room 100 years from now, who the next president is is not going to matter. And I'll remind you that God picks the leaders. Either for his Obviously for his glory, but it may be for our judgment too. Do you understand that? Be very careful. Today it may also look like opposing Second Amendment views. It may be that we get divided over, and and I love this word, unessential theological doctrines. Unessential. If you don't understand that, you need to go to Pastor Grant's class. Unessential. Doctrines that hinder us. Maybe it's just a past grudge or jealousy, but it's all the same. It threatens the peace, not only within ourselves and between each other, but the body as a whole. Do not think for a minute 
that living in peace as a body of believers is not under attack, because it is. If Satan can swipe your peace, he can swipe your ministry. You understand that? And Paul attacks it head on. It was important then. It's important now. If you want to live in peace, you must acknowledge that it's threatened. You need to confront it head on. And oh, by the way, here's a bummer. It may be you. Secondly, the secret to living in peace is that you must not only acknowledge uh, the fact that it's threatened, but the secret to living in peace is that you must acknowledge that this peace that we're talking about is a spiritual issue and it requires spiritual action on our part. Okay, let me say that again. The secret to living in peace is that you need to acknowledge that peace is a spiritual issue and it requires spiritual action on our part. Look at verses 4 through 6. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anything look familiar there? Verse 4. The first four words in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Look back in chapter 3. Verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. The complement to that being in chapter 4. Verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. And here he again he says rejoice in the Lord. And I will say again rejoice. He's emphasizing the fact that for whatever reason, the church was beginning to stand still and they had lost sight of rejoicing in the Lord. I think there was a clear failure here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought it up. And he emphasized it. It was a clear failure that they weren't rejoicing in the Lord. I think back to last week. Pastor Grant, that sounds like zeal to me. Zeal. Do you remember that? The zeal that Christ had for his church and for us. And he invites us alongside to rejoice in the Lord. And apparently, this was a clear failure. It begs the question, well, what were they rejoicing in? Was it winning a fight within the body? Was it garnering support? I have more people on my side, Euodia, than I do Syntyche. Was it being able to stand up in full face and say, I told you so? I don't know, but the question boomerangs back to us then. So what do we rejoice in? Is it winning a fight within the body of believers? I finally got pumpkin spice carpet in the auditorium? No. That got nixed. I saw it right up here. Do we rejoice in our sports? Do we rejoice in our politics? Do we rejoice in the great definition of moderation, one cigar at a time? Spurgeon, right? The point is we're rejoicing in the wrong thing, and Paul calls it out. We need to rejoice in the Lord, and I can almost see him pounding 
And by the way, he was in jail. You remember that, right? Pounding whatever he was writing on, saying, people, you need to rejoice in the Lord, your salvation, your peace with God, your eternal destiny, your home, your citizenship, your sins are forgiven, you're covered by the blood of Christ at no cost to you. And you're grumping about what? Your sins are forgiven. Rejoice in the Lord. He goes on to say, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. Apparently, reasonableness was not uh, the uh, tune of the day. This word reasonableness means a gentle forbearance. It's uncomplaining readiness to get along with others. That's what the word means. Not being pugnacious. You know what pugnacious is, right? It's not a dog, okay? Pugnacious means you're always wanting to pick a fight, okay? He says, no, it's just the opposite. Look what he wrote uh, to Titus in chapter 3, verse 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then in James, James writes, but the wisdom from above, okay, from God is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Did that describe the church? Paul was adamant about this. All of these were the opposite of this brawling. And he goes on to say, do not be anxious. This word anxious means uh, troubled with care. And you realize that the word he used here in anxious was the same word that Christ used in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you read over in chapter 6, Jesus makes, has this whole sermon about anxiety. And this kind of worry that takes over, it, it preoccupies our minds. We're agitated, we're fearful, fearful, we're tormented, we're burdened about things that may or may not happen to. That's where we gravitate to. And Jesus said, no, you don't have to be anxious. And I want you to stop there for just a second. I'm not going to ask for a confession, but tell me I'm wrong. But there are some people that are anxious about something. We all have it. It's all in our lives. And in particular, sometimes it goes this way. And Paul says, don't be anxious about these things. But here's the beauty of the passage. Instead of staying, instead of Paul just saying, well, just stop it. Okay, that's akin to you going into your physician's office and you've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And what are we going to do about it? Well, I would hope that they talk to you about uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, okay? Uh, I would hope that they talk to you about uh, the sodium glucose cotranspirator 2 inhibitors, which is my choice, by the way. Uh, I think sulfonylureas and, and, uh, and uh, thiazolidine dions are out. And we can debate that after church if you'd like. I'll be over there somewhere. But here's the point. If you go into your physician's office and they're not talking to you about a solution and they lean across the table where you're sitting there in that little gown freezing to death and say, well, you've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Here you go. You ready for this? Just stop it. Really? 
That's what you got for me? Yeah. Just stop being diabetic. That's like getting the flu, and the doctor said, well, you just need to quit having the flu. Or maybe your appendix is, uh, can't have that happen to me one Sunday night in church, besides the rupture. Well, just quit having appendicitis. It doesn't work like that. And here's the beauty of the passage, is that Paul literally, you get the picture, Paul literally gives us the answer. He doesn't say just stop being anxious. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but, here it is. Okay, but, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what is he saying? It's the timeless remedy for the anxiety that threatens the peace of our life. First of all, he says that he talks about how to deal with it. He says, with this deep sense of worry that you see, he says, take it to God. Forget Dr. Phil. Okay? You don't need to go to Barnes and Nobles and rummage through the self-help section. Paul says, take it to God. He says, with supplication. That means literally asking him. Why? Because God is able. I'm going to give you, now I'll throw the challenge out. I'll give you from now to the rest of your life to show me a passage in Scripture where God was not able. Paul says, take it to the able one. And not only that, he not only answers the how, but he answers the why. He talks about taking it to God, first of all, who is uh, with thanksgiving, basically means thanksgiving that we can approach God. (laughs) Do you realize we can literally approach the almighty creator ourselves with thanksgiving? Take it to him, trusting him, relying on him, okay, because he's trustworthy. But look at the other part. Prayer answers not only the who, but secondly, it answers the why. And you think, but the anxiety part, why? Can I tell you that God never acts without purpose, and his purposes never fail? Can I say that again? God never acts without purpose, and his purposes never fail. Okay, whatever his purposes is, he refines us, he draws us to himself. And in Romans chapter 8, the way I read it, for believers, he works it out for the good, for his glory. Okay? I didn't say that the situation would go away. I just said he'll work it out, take it to him. But he goes on. He says, not only take it to him, but he says, thinking about these things. Okay? That's in in, in verse 8. Whatever is honorable, or whatever is true, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Paul says, think about these things. Can I remind you as you go down through that list, name something here on the planet that meets all of that criteria. Look back at chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of you who who, uh, I have often told you and now tell you, uh, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cause of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mind set on earthly things. 
Paul redirects your mind at this point. He redirects your minds to the heavenly things. He says, don't be anxious, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, think about, fix your mind on heavenly things. Remember where your citizenship, it's in heaven. But he goes on. Verse 9, look at this. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What things? This is an entire letter. Remember, folks, he laid it out, a life worthy of the gospel, the continued partnership with the gospel, having the same mindset, having the mind of Christ, doing everything without grumbling, chapter 2, rejoicing in the Lord, chapter 3, counting the flesh as loss, being found in Christ, forgetting the past, pressing on, imitating the lifestyle of Christian leaders that God puts in your place, and on and on and on. This was part of the whole letter. And he says all of these actions, they're spiritual actions, and they're leading to a life of peace. Do you see that? Paul practiced what he preached, and he was entreating these people to practice what he preached. He's pressing on. Practice what you've learned, church at Philippi. That's what he's saying. Practice what you've learned, Cedar Springs. Living in peace as a body of believers is a spiritual issue that requires spiritual action on our part. But finally, I want you to notice we skipped a couple of verses, didn't we? Do you see the word and in verse 7 and the word and in verse 9? Okay? So living in peace, you need to acknowledge the threat. You need to confront it. You must realize that peace is a spiritual issue that requires spiritual action on our parts. But finally, living in peace, third thing, you must acknowledge God's promises and believe them. I think this is the difficult part. You must acknowledge God's promises and believe them or rely on them. Verse 7, and after he says all this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The second part of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. There are at least three promises here, and I want you to look at them very closely. First promise is that when we go through this progression of acknowledging it, with realizing that this is a spiritual issue that requires spiritual actions, look now when he says uh, in, in verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Can I remind you that where he's taking you is that your life is going to be supernaturally touched. There's your first promise in there, that you're going to be supernaturally touched by God. And this, it, this supernatural touch is not something that's hidden, okay? It's not something that's a mystery. It's just a peace that you cannot understand or explain away. You just can't do it. The issue is not explaining the way, explaining it to someone. The issue is realizing that the peace that God is going to gift you with is a peace that is to be accepted, not explained. It's from God for you to His glory. You get it? It's a peace that's to be accepted, not explained. 
It's from God for you to His glory. Leave it at that. But secondly, this supernatural, unexplainable peace, look at it in verse 7, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that this supernatural peace that you will be gifted with will guard or fortify your heart and your mind. The picture that he's painting for you is a citadel around us, a garrison, if you will, that guards our hearts and our minds from all of this stuff that Paul's already called out, between disagreements and anxiety and unreasonableness and all of these type things. And these walls, Paul says, are patrolled 24-7 by God's messengers, and they're waving this banner to the glory of the prince of what? Peace. Paul paints this picture and he says that he will guard your heart and your mind while they are upholding the standard to the, the prince of peace. But then the third thing, which is a great line in a book, if you're, if you're ever inclined to write a book or, or even in a movie, and you have the narrator say, meanwhile, back at the castle, okay, The castle is your heart. The castle is your mind that's being guarded. Look what happens there. Verse 9. And the God of peace will be what? With you. Meanwhile, while all of this stuff is going on outside of the citadel, and the citadel is being guarded the whole time, guess who you're sitting with back at the castle? God himself. God himself. You are sitting with him. Park your mind there for just a second. And the God of peace will be with you. His presence, his power, his protection, the peace of God from God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that some of the circumstances outside of the castle have changed. I'm saying you have. Because God is guarding your heart and your mind and literally they're with you. Don't wash over this. We've decided for some reason that peace is only going to happen when some situation changes in our lives. That's not Paul. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says peace has become or what, what we have devolved to unfortunately is that peace is some marshmallow term that we've thrown out there it's this quiet by the sea it's this contentment that i have it's when yin yang and zen show up it's like well i don't know who those three stooges are but that doesn't work okay paul contends and i contend that the peace of god is not a marshmallow term at all in fact it's just the opposite The peace of God is strong and it's mighty. The peace of God that comes from God himself who literally made peace with us through his son was a long, hard-fought battle. From the time that Christ was born all through his ministry, and if you remember Gary's sermon uh, at, at Gethsemane, how agonizing that battle was for Christ. 
And the peace of God brought him through that. But the peace of God also sent him to the cross and he bore our sins. He was crushed under its weight, okay, so that the God of peace could enjoy peace with us. Do you understand that? Peace of God is not a marshmallow term. It's a mighty term because God is mighty. And then the God of peace in the ultimate display of divine power raised him from the dead. That's not marshmallow stuff. Do you understand that? That's power. That's might. The God of peace who gives us peace is the God of power and victory over sin and death. He guards our hearts and his minds. He is with us. He is powerful. He is victorious. And he's the key to living in peace. The term echoes all the way back to the Old Testament. When they talked about shalom, you'll still hear that today from the Jewish um, nation, shalom. And that means not so much the absence of conflict, uh, but a relationship. And it started with the Jews. Shalom started here, and it echoed here. Do you understand that? A wholeness. When you have a relationship with God that flows over to a relationship with those around you. That's what they mean. And this is where Paul is going with all this. It's a healing piece. It's powerful enough to heal relationships horizontally. It's powerful enough uh, to cure uh, our worries and guard our hearts. Do you see that? Paul never disconnected from his original theme, encouraging the church, calling them to change, rejoicing the Lord, to live a life worthy of the gospel and on. But what he's telling these people, what he's telling us is we need to learn to trust God with what, trust God with what I call horizontal train wrecks. Do you have one? A horizontal train wreck. Can I remind you, sometimes it's between friends. Sometimes it's just between acquaintances. Sometimes it's in the family. Sometimes it's between the parent and the child. Sometimes it's between the child and the parent. The scriptures remind us to call it out, pray over it with thanksgiving, and rely on God to see the results. Keep your mind fixed on heavenly things and then put it into practice. Can I remind you, with spiritual issues, it's not the thought that counts. One step further, put it into practice. And the result? A supernatural peace from God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will. Guard your hearts and your minds. Do you see that? How safe is that? Verse 9. And the God of peace will. Wow. And the God of peace will. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you see the promise? You see, it's never about the promise from God. Don't think that God's not going to follow through because he hasn't failed yet. and He's not going to. That's his promise, okay? The issue is not with God. The issue is with us. 
The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe him enough to rely on his promise? Can I ask you, believers, on this side of heaven, what else do you want? What else do you need? The truth of it all, about peace, Christ fought for it, Christ died for it, Christ won it for us, and we didn't have to lift a finger. We didn't even have to protest. Therefore, rely on him, whatever the issue is, and live. Maybe the first sermon title was better. Rest in peace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Your words that uh, we desperately need to hear. And Father, for your promises which are beyond what we can imagine, that the very creator of not only the universe but our salvation would come and be with us. Father, your mercies are overwhelming, and I would pray for all of us that we would trust you, and, Father, that you might gift us with that supernatural peace that guards our hearts and our minds. And that you would literally be with us. We'd ask that favor in Jesus' name. And amen. Stand while we.